Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Greetings, my fellow fantasy football hooligans, and welcome to another installment of Fitz on Fantasy. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. You can find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to it on iTunes or SoundCloud, and don't be shy about giving it a rating and a review. So I saw on Twitter that as of Tuesday, we were exactly 100 days away from the start of the NFL regular season, which means we're now less than 100 days away from that Packers-Bears Thursday night opener, and only about 10 weeks away from the first full slate of preseason action and the unofficial kickoff of fantasy draft season. It's never too early to start prepping for your fantasy drafts, and one of the best ways to prepare, in my humble opinion, is by listening to what the Sharps have to say about players and draft strategy and what they're thinking as they gear up for the 2019 season. And to that end, I'm pleased to tell you that my guest today is Graham Barfield, fantasy football managing editor at NFL.com. I've been very eager to have Graham on this show and to get his thoughts on a wide array of topics. And it's finally going to happen right here, right now. So let's not tarry here any longer in the frivolity of a long introduction. Let's get right to our VIP guest. Joining me now is Mr. Graham Barfield. He is the fantasy football managing editor at NFL.com. He can now be seen and heard on NFL Fantasy Live, and he is also the creator of the Yards Created Metric, which we'll talk about with him shortly. And quite simply, he's one of the sharpest people in the fantasy football media. Find him on Twitter at Graham Barfield. Welcome, Graham. How was your Memorial Day weekend? It was, it was great, man. Um Got, got some beach time uh, here in L.A., uh, kind of went for a hike on Saturday. On Sunday, we kind of had some clouds, which was very, very unfriendly, very un L.A. like. And uh, I, I I did not appreciate it. Um, I'm kidding. I, I grew up in a very, very, very bad area for weather. And uh, I moving out here, I've kind of like just been extremely spoiled. So anytime we get clouds, I always make fun of people that have lived here for a very long time and, and do actually complain about it. But I had a great weekend. What about you, my friend? Yeah, it was good. Uh, snuck in some grilling and some golf. So all in all, I can't complain. But uh, yeah, I've definitely got some questions for you about moving to LA and what it's like to live out there. So um, we'll get to that in a bit. I'll, I'll start off with football. And uh, I mentioned Yards Created a minute ago. So maybe we should start there. Now, for me personally, Yards Created had a very practical application last year since it warned me to stay the hell away from Ronald Jones. Or should I say, you warned me to stay the hell away from Ronald Jones. Uh, But maybe I'm putting the cart before the horse a little bit, or in this case, before the dead horse. So before we talk about Jones, uh, why don't you give people a quick overview of what Yards Created is all about? Sure. Yeah, Yards Created, uh, I've been doing this now for four years. Uh, It's strictly for college running backs. And essentially what Yards Created is, is the amount of yards a running back gains on his own, independent of offensive line play. Um, now, again, that's a little bit of a loaded statement. Offensive line play and running back play will never be fully divorced. Um, running backs are always going to be dependent on what their offensive line, their offensive scheme opens up for them. But yards created just simply accounts for the amount of yards the running back gains on his own. And I also also chart the uh, yards, the offensive line is credited on that play. And uh, Ronald Jones didn't exactly pop last year when you ran him through yards created, right? Yeah, Ronald Jones really struggled. Um, in fact, now adding another year of data to my database, Ronald Jones's um, 3.5 yards created per attempt 
is the worst, or excuse me, the second worst figure I have in my database. Um, his missed tackle force per, uh, per attempt numbers were were very subpar too. And USC's uh, offense at the time was very shotgun heavy. I, I charted um, um, six games from his 2017 season with Sam Darnold, and they were primarily a shotgun team, and he struggled immensely. I felt um, running out of shotgun when things weren't very clearly defined for him or if he were not running off tackle. And that's actually a, another concern I have that leads into this year, uh, independent of this 2018 rookie season, which we can talk about here in a second. But I fully expect the Bucks to be a very shotgun-heavy oriented offense. And I know we've seen a little bit of hype from Jameis Winston, from Bruce Arians, from the GM Jason Licks surrounding Ronald Jones. But uh, after his rookie season, I, I still am not exactly uh, – optimistic for Ronald Jones' uh, 2019 projections uh, in Tampa. And your early rankings kind of reflect that, right? You've got him like somewhere in the 40s and behind Peyton Barber, if I recall I, correctly. Yeah, I pretty much still have Ronald Jones buried in my ranks. Um, I have Peyton Barber in the like high-end RB3 range. I still think he's pretty clearly the um, the best bet there to lead them in carries. But again, like I on a personal like, on a personal bias level, I really hope they just go extremely pass heavy and and Jameis and and Evans and Godwin and Howard and all these guys go nuts and we really don't have to worry too too much about their uh, backfield. I will say the the one thing that could keep the light on for Jones is we know Peyton Barber is a very poor pass catcher, but the thing about Jones too is he was he was a poor pass catcher at USC um, as well. He only caught uh, he caught fewer than one ball per game in his final two seasons. And he had the worst pass pro ex- execution rate I have ever charted in yards created. That still stands. He only uh, his he only he allowed pressure on forty five percent of his pass protection attempts at USC in his final season. So I still can't figure out where Ronald Jones wins. I can't figure out where he's going to get on the field. And last year he couldn't get on the field. Um, but that being said, he's this depth chart is is it's still wide open for him. It really is, at least for now, although you wonder if there might be someone else added to the mix at some point, and uh, you know, then we can maybe bury Ronald Jones a little bit deeper for good. Um, what about this year's rookies, Graham? Who were some of the guys who got some validation from yards created, and uh, who were the guys with iffier yards created results? Right. This was a very, very, I felt like, lackluster class, both at the top end and in terms of its depth. We only saw seven running backs go in the uh, first two days of the NFL draft. Um, That's kind of on the low end of what we've seen in the past couple of years, especially the last two or three draft classes. We've just been so fortunate with so many good running backs. But uh, Josh Jacobs and Darrell Henderson were my two guys in this class. And and Josh Jacobs really just at this point, there's not too much we really can say about him at at this point, especially now that we know the landing spot. Um, He's going to play all three downs in Oakland, and I, I hope uh, that they use him in the passing game because I, I think he was extremely underutilized in Alabama's passing game. Um, that being said, Darrell Henderson, I think, is the the, the more fun prospect um, and situation to talk about, especially concerning Todd Gurley's left knee. Uh, Darrell Henderson actually led all running backs in this class in yards created per attempt and yards gained per route run. Uh, he was just extremely efficient on a per carry basis, but that's – a, lot, a good amount of that is because of Memphis's offensive line and their scheme. They opened up over two and a half yards blocked per attempt. That's the most I've ever charted. That being said, though, I mean, Henderson is just so explosive both laterally and um, and horizontally. I mean, he's just – he. I firmly believe that Darrell Henderson had the ceiling to be the best running back in this class, and now he goes to the Rams that have kind of opened up this new scheme – of rushing efficiency and also targeting the running backs heavily early on early downs in the passing game. It's a, it's a very good landing spot for Darrell Henderson if Todd Gurley's left knee is not right. Um, but that still is up for debate. And frankly, Pat, I don't think we're going to get many answers on Gurley until the bullets start flying and it's week one or week two. No, I know. And, you know, in, in typical fantasy leagues where you've got maybe a 16-man roster, it generally doesn't pay to handcuff your players before like November. And this might be one of the rare exceptions where, man, if you're a girly owner, I would really want to slam that back door with Henderson. I don't even think Henderson's a handcuff. I, I think that they dra- they moved up to the 70th overall pick to get him for a reason. I think that he will have a role week one. Now, he may only play like 15 percent to 20 percent of snaps starting 
Um, I'm not by any means saying he's going to push Todd Gurley for a starting job because when Todd Gurley is healthy, we, we don't, I don't think Darrell Henderson's close to pushing Gurley for the starter snaps. But I, I do expect Henderson to have a role early on. And if Gurley's knee is not right, uh, we, we could be going gangbusters here. Now, I know there was one other guy that you mentioned yards created liked this year, uh, Bryce Love. So obviously an interesting case coming off the injury, but uh, what did you find out about him through yards created? Yeah, Br- Bryce Love, I felt like before the draft, if he were fully healthy, he would have pushed Josh Jacobs and Darrell Henderson for like a top three or top, uh, top two spot among my rankings. But obviously he fell in the draft. Um, because of the ACL concerns and prior to the ACL concerns, he had also dealt with um, a couple ankle issues that kind of bogged him down in his final two seasons at Stanford. But I love on on his own in his, in his yards created sample was fantastic. I mean, he averaged 5.6 yards created per attempt on his carries under center at Stanford. Uh, Only uh, Leonard Fournette and Christian McCaffrey have been better over the last four years. And Stanford is a very, um, old school offense with the quarterback under center. 64% of Love's carries came with a quarterback under center, and he faced a ton of stacked eight-man boxes on those attempts. Love, when he's healthy, was a freakish, freakish player in college. Um, but at this point, Pat, I, I really, I have no idea where his his knee is at, and, and, and frankly, those those longer-term ankle issues are, are also a concern for me, considering Love is a is a smaller back. Um, in stature. Yeah, maybe like a dynasty flyer, but really hard to think about him in redraft with the medical issues. Um, but, you know, talk about a guy you could possibly keep the light on for based on yards created. Uh, you know, if he ever does get right physically, there's definitely a chance for success there with, uh, you know, some of what he was able to do at Stanford, as you mentioned, less encouraging with yards created. Um, I know it didn't love. Josh Jacobs' teammate, Damian Harris, is that right? Yeah, Damian Harris kind of reminds me of um, of a Paul Perkins type player in the sense that like he does everything decently well, but he doesn't do one thing exceptionally well. Um, in terms of yards created per attempt, Josh Jacobs uh, averaged four point six one yards created per attempt in his in his sample. Damian Harris was down at three point nine two. Jacobs's missed tackles uh, numbers were significantly better than Damian Harris's as well. Um, I kind of felt like Damian Harris now in New England is, is obviously going to this uh, in this position where he's joining an extremely crowded backfield where we cannot project any more than maybe four to five snaps per game early on for him early in his career. I, I kind of felt like when they picked Harris, it was more of like uh, insurance for Sony Michelle's degenerative knee. Um, there was a report that came out around the draft where Michelle uh, had his experiencing a degenerative knee in the preseason. He kind of flared it up a little bit, obviously into the season well, but I, I felt like Damon Harris was more of an insurance pick on Michelle, if anything else. But do you have a read on this backfield? And, and if so, you know, what's your read on, on Harris? Because I'm, I'm genuinely interested to, to see uh, other people's opinions, like of how they think this backfield is going to play out this, this upcoming season. No, I'm pretty stumped myself, and I actually put that question out there on Twitter, like, you know, what to make of the Damian Harris pick, and, and some people were like, you know, Burkhead's toast, other people were thinking that, you know, they're worried about Sony Michelle's knee, um, boy, uh, I don't know if it's just an overall depth thing, uh, maybe it is just that they are worried about the ability of Burkhead and or Sony to hold up, and they just felt like they needed to have another body there. So um, it's an interesting equation, too, because the Patriots notoriously keep a running back on the roster to play special teams and Rex, James White, Sony Michelle and Damien Harris, unless Damien Harris some sort of has some special team skills that we don't know about. All four of those guys are not going to play special teams. Um, so it'll be it'll be interesting to see who they keep. And and uh, it could be possible that Rex is on the outs there. Yeah, I would think so, because it doesn't seem like any of those guys fit the Brandon Bolden prototype uh as far as the you know utility back and special teams ace um grim what about justice hill was he another guy who yards created uh who didn't really pop in yards created unfortunately i didn't have time to get to justice hill um during uh, before the draft i am planning on this summer going back and actually 
watching Hill and Vinny Snell and maybe uh, a couple other players and adding my uh, my yards created list. But I, I watched a bit of Justice Hill and I have obviously studied his numbers. I'm very, very intrigued by his role in Baltimore now. Uh, both Kenneth Dixon and Gus Edwards are going to be free agents after the 2019 season. They're both unrestricted free. And it'll essentially be just, I'm assuming, Justice Hill and Mark Ingram on the you know the second year restricted free agent deal. Hill is obviously a very explosive player in a straight line and flash some receiving chops at Oklahoma State, but doesn't profile particularly as a as a you know, as an every down or bell cow player in fantasy. And those types of guys are always tough to typecast. Uh, but that being said, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely interested in Justin Hill, uh, excuse me, Justice Hill and Dynasty. Uh, but for redraft this year, I'm kind of outside of, you know, 17th, 18th round best ball pick. I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, not, not too excited about Hill uh, as, as a rookie. Grim, let's talk some general draft strategy now that we're sort of getting into, uh, you know, some invitations for expert mocks and uh you know other various analyst drafts the scott fishbowl coming up have you started thinking about how you want to handle the early rounds of drafts this year would you be willing to go oh man (laughs) (laughs) have i started thinking about it look pat i gotta pull up i've done 42 best ball drafts oh wow now most of them most of them now now let's Let's be very clear here. I am not one that's flush with cash. Most of them are our dollar or three dollars uh, leagues, just to kind of get my my brain racing. But yeah, I uh, I've I've done quite a few, and I feel pretty comfortable about about strategy this year. So well, far. man, I'm on number eight right now, so you've got me blown <laughs> away. Uh, I'm also a so, so. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me what you think as far as your willingness to go wide receiver, wide receiver, if you're picking near the turn and could get, for example, Devontae Adams, Julio Jones combo, or if you prefer a DeAndre Hopkins, Michael Thomas combo, or you pretty hell bent on getting at least one running back with one of your first two picks. If if I've noticed anything in in my drafts this year, um, it's that running back gets thin very, very, very quickly. Like I would say after the sixth or seventh round, uh, pretty much every single running back is is pretty vomit-inducing. Um, I I like to take shots on high upside players in best ball leagues in like the eighth, ninth, tenth round with my running back. So I, I'm drafting guys like Darrell Henderson and, and, and guys that I think that can be league winners. Uh, that being said, because running back is so scarce this season, I I think my teams, I feel most comfortable with my teams when I come out of the first two rounds with at least one running back. And if I'm picking at the turn this season, and because receiver is so deep, my my favorite turn this year has actually been to take James Conner and Joe Mixon at the turn and kind of fade Devontae Adams and Julio in that spot. And, and the reason for it is simple. It's like workhorse running backs are, you know, they're so, so scarce in, 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 uh, in fantasy football. And both James Conner and Joe Mixon both had dominant workhorse roles last season. They both played over 70% of their team snaps. They both were in the top five in terms of their team's carry rates. They were both heavily involved in the passing game. Uh, because receivers so deep and because I can find receivers that I love up and down the draft board, the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh round of drafts, I typically want to target running back, uh, at least have one running back on my team um, after the first two rounds. But I mean, of, of course, this comes down to the old classic, you know, zero RB debate. And if zero RB is dead, uh, I typically, I don't think it is. I think you can still find an advantage uh, by playing the waiver wire. Uh, but in, in best ball drafts, yeah, I, I think this year, especially given the scarcity of, of running backs, it's it's very wise to come try at least get one running back in your first two. Now I'm totally with you on Mixon. I've been a little bit conflicted about Connor. Like to me, that price right around the turn seems just a tad high because uh, I worry a little bit about the possible expansion of Jalen Samuel's role. And I also think maybe the Pittsburgh offense takes a slight step back with Antonio Brown out of the picture, but I don't know. I mean, I realistically for me, I think he's like a guy who should go 16 to 18 or so. And, you know, really there's not that big a difference between like that and 12 to 14. It just kind of, kind of means that I haven't been getting too much of them. So I don't know. Do any of those things worry you at all, or are you pretty confident that the role is going to continue to be uh, pretty robust for him? Well, my first thing that I'll say is I think I'm probably one of the highest on Connor in the industry, um, and I've definitely seen his ADP 
um, in the drafts that I've done recently kind of slip into that mid-second range. So your point of not feeling comfortable around the turn is more of a consensus opinion. Um, that being said, I, I want workhorse running backs attached to great offenses, and James Conner is a workhorse running back attached to a great offense. The bigger, the biggest concern and the most uh, plausible concern that you brought up is, is AB leaving. I think that is a as I, I, I maybe we can talk about Ben here, but my biggest concern with Big Ben and the reason I'm kind of fading Big Ben this season is I, I don't think people are uh, I think people are underestimating AB's. Um, difference-making ability on this offense. Um, and maybe we'll see a little bit more Jalen Samuels. Uh, maybe Benny Snell will spell Connor a little bit more to keep from, keep him fresh. But by and large, the Steelers, as long as Mike Tomlin has been the coach there, they have used a workhorse running back. It doesn't matter if it's been Le'Veon Bell, it's been D'Angelo Williams, it's even been Fitzgerald Toussaint for a game in the playoffs. They, they have kept one running back on the field under Mike Tomlin. It would be a pretty big step away from tendency if they – go away from that this season. Look, I'm totally with you, man, on on Big Ben. Like, I am not going to be getting him in many uh, drafts at all, if any. And, you know, not only is AB gone, he's coming off, like, the rare healthy year. Um, you know, where where do you have him in your QB rankings? Is he, like, out of QB1 range? Yeah, I have him at QB 18. Um, I've got Kyler Murray one spot behind him. I'm very tempted to move Kyler up. And, and, and quite frankly, I will definitely move Kyler up in my rankings uh, later this offseason. But I've got Ben at 18. And it feels weird just based on, you know, the track record he's had and the efficiency he's had and, and over a number of seasons. But, you know, now he's at the end of his career and he just lost, frankly, you know, one of the three best receivers of all time. I mean, it's it's a... Uh, it's it's tough for me to be really heavily invested in the Steelers passing offense outside of Juju. Yeah, I'm with you. And I, I realize like the QB rankings get pretty flat after you get past the top, I know, four or five, six guys. But yeah, a, a lot of people are maybe taking Big Ben at like QB8, QB9, QB10, and I just want no part of him at that price. Yeah, that's, that's very, very fair. And to your point, QB this year really quickly on the stra- on like while we're talking strategy for the season. This is how many years have you been doing fantasy? Oh god, like uh 25. <laughs> okay, so you you've got double you've got double the amount on me. Uh in my, you know, like 10 plus years of, of playing fantasy, this is easily easily the deepest quarterback has ever been. Easily. It's I mean it's not even close this season. Um and for that re- and for for that reason I am kind of picking and choosing the guys I'm targeting, especially late, and, and Big Ben is not on my list. Now, uh, getting back to running back for just a second, one guy who's been kind of polarizing for a lot of people this year is Leonard Fournette. Where are you and him at the moment? I've kind of come full circle on Fournette. I was very interested to start the offseason, like March, April. Um, I was not doing any drafts of my own, but looking at ADP and, and kind of getting a feel for the market this year and saw he was typically going in the fourth round and my eyes just kind of lit up since the off season and since the draft has kind of started coming um coming around he's his adp has really shot up he's he's kind of gone uh from kind of late four or excuse me late third early fourth into the early third range and at that point i'm basically just sprinkling him in um it is nice to get an actual injury discount on a player that has an actual injury concern with with Fournette. I mean, this is now three, four straight years we've seen of him not being able to stay healthy going back to his days at LSU. But the same factors that we liked for Fournette last season and the season before still remain. Um, when he's been on the field, he has had one of the best roles in fantasy football. He's going to get the ball over 20 plus times per game. And the Jaguars have invested heavily in their offensive. I'm more or less my opinion on Fournette is I want to be kind of market weight on him this year. I'm not actively targeting him in very many leagues, um, but I'm also not shying away from him. If I do actually start my teams receiver receiver in the first two rounds, I'm I'm actually pretty okay with taking Fournette and and having a little more variance on my team because if Fournette plays a full 13, 14 games, he doesn't need to play a full season, but if he gets, if he gives us 13 or 14 games this, this year, it's going to be pretty hard for him not to finish as a top 15. I like that approach of staying with market range, and it seems like that's a good approach with the kind of player he is. And interesting how we've seen that groundswell, how he went from being a guy whose stock was sort of beaten down a little bit 
uh, after, you know, the injuries he endured last year, sort of ending a, the season on a sour note with uh, the coaching staff and management. And, uh, you know, maybe the stock just got beaten down a little too much, considering, as you mentioned, the role, the fact that the Jaguars are still pretty Neolithic when it comes to their offense. Um yeah, I'd, I'd like the idea of sort of reacting according to what the room is is doing. Um, Graham, you had Mark Ingram ranked pretty high in your first pass at redraft rankings. And I do realize that those were just, you know, initial rankings and they're probably going to be tweaks throughout the summer. But uh, are you pretty confident that the Ravens have that strong setup still for a lead running back? Or are you at all concerned that it might devolve into a committee with Ingram, Gus Edwards, Justice Hill? I guess you talked about Justice Hill earlier, but um, last year, the, let, let's rewind the clocks, clocks here for a minute. Last year, the, the, the Baltimore Ravens had literally a stable of running backs at different points in time. Um, Alex Collins, Gus Edwards, Buck Allen, Kenneth Dixon, and, uh, and Ty Montgomery. They all played significant snaps for Baltimore last year. I have to be of the opinion that they do not want to have this like six you know, another, you know, six man rotation this year. They're definitely are going to keep these guys fresh because they're going to be extremely run heavy. Once Lamar Jackson took over as their starter last year, they went 64% run heavy. That was easily the highest rate. I don't expect that to come crashing back down to earth, but I fully expect the Baltimore Ravens to be the most run heavy team in the NFL again. Last year, once Jackson took over, they were um, Baltimore running backs were second in carries per game, first in yards per carry, and first in rushing yards per I want a piece of this offense. And now we have seen Mark Ingram with the Saints put up RB1 numbers in the past. He is by far the most talented running back of this crop. And if he is going to be getting, you know, even 55 to 60% of the team's carries um, this season, I, I'm, it's, it, again, it's one of those situations where, like, the, the environment is just too good for him not to be an RB2. Um, I kind of thought that that Ingram, in terms of just a fit, like just a pure team fit, this is pretty much perfect. You know, Ingram is a downhill, violent runner who loves yards after contact. Uh, Lamar Jackson is the opposite. He is a speedy, kind of off-tackle, make-you-miss type player. And with Ingram and Jackson in the same backfield, they both kind of play off of each other's um, strong suits. We saw that a little bit with Gus Edwards last year as a downhill north-south runner. Now Ingram has a lot more flavor as a runner and is a decent pass catcher too. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty heavily heavily invested in Mark Ingram in the fourth round so far. And you know the Ravens had to have thought about what kind of running back would pair well with Lamar before they threw that money at Mark Ingram. I mean, they had to have an idea that this was going to work. Oh, yeah. I mean, Jackson stretches the defenses, you know, horizontally and with his speed and, and Ingram just smashes in between the middle and and hopefully uh, takes up the lion's share of the, the red zone carries. And and maybe Lamar Jackson gets just a little bit better at checking down passes. If, if, if Mark Ingram can catch like 25 or 30 balls this year, I'm going to be very happy. All right, Graham, tell me what it's like to work for the league. Are you still in the holy shit? I can't believe I'm working for the NFL phase. <laughs> um. Just being honest with you, it's been one of the coolest and most humbling experiences I've ever had in my life. Um, I've learned, I've only been at the NFL for a year, uh, but I've learned so much, um, not only just about you know the job itself, but about myself and uh, the way I, I have to work. Um, it, it's, yeah, there's definitely moments where I've been like, holy crap, you know, I, I work at the NFL and, uh, you know, I, I started this uh, as a junior in college, uh, working out of my one bedroom apartment in Jacksonville that I didn't have much money to pay for. And it's definitely been um, an unbelievable experience. And just, just like, it's just so, so cool that I, I get to, 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 you know, write and talk about fantasy football for a living at the platform that I have. And uh, I just feel so fortunate to have it. It's just, it's just been, it's been really fun. What are some of the best things about the gig so far? Like things that just have you pinching yourself. Like, I can't believe I'm doing this for a living. <laughs> um, some of the best points. It's a good question. I think probably the coolest thing I've done so far is I got to go to London last year. Um, my first time going to London, my first time catching a game internationally, I got to see, uh, unfortunately, it was Seahawks Raiders, which was the worst London yeah. game last year possible <laughs> because just, the Raiders were an absolute dumpster fire. But uh, yeah, being 
having the privilege to go to, you know, stuff like, you know, go to catch a game in London or, or go, you know, do a couple shows with my co-host Marcus Grant for, for, uh, for combine. Um, those types of experiences are, are, you know, the small things that I, I'm, I've really, really appreciated. And I just absolutely feel so, uh, so fortunate to do. And now you're living somewhere in LA, right? That's another added bonus to this job, which, uh, Neighbor. I never once expected to live in uh, in LA or New York or any big city. To be honest with you, um, yeah, it's it's definitely been an experience, and it, it brought a lot of stress uh, early on when I first moved out here, just not knowing anything or anyone or where to live. Um, but now that I've kind of got the lay of the land and I've been here enough, I, I I've definitely gotten into a flow of the area. And, yeah. So you said you grew up where North Carolina and then you were in Jacksonville and where some of the other other places you had called home before L.A. I was I, I moved all over. Um, I lived originally uh, was born in Boone, North Carolina, uh, home of the Appalachian State Mountaineers, home of uh, actually saw Daniel Jeremiah play quarterback uh, when he was with App State in 2000. Um, was born in Boone, moved all over North Carolina, uh, then moved to Florida when I was you know kind of a kid, moved all over Florida. And now I'm here, uh, so I've never really had a home base, and for that reason, I get this I get this question all the time. I don't have a favorite NFL team for that reason, um, but I've kind of adopted the Chargers uh, just because they, they don't have any fans in LA, and I kind of feel bad for them. And I don't have a team, so uh, I have. There have been uh, beyond moving to to uh, a huge city and, and a great city like LA. There's also been some uh, some fun little small things like picking up a, a sports team like I've never had before. Great. Now, is there like a culture shock to moving to L.A.? Like anything that's really stood out to you is just like kind of jaw dropping as far as the. the God, different. yeah. God, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I lived in, I lived in Atlanta for two years after I graduated um, and the traffic in Atlanta is really bad. I, it, it doesn't even it pales in comparison to the traffic here. Like you literally like from like four to 7 p.m. you you can't go anywhere on the highways you've got to take back roads and uh it's definitely changed the way i uh like get food and stuff um i i used to be like a huge uh, in atlanta you can kind of get anywhere like if you avoid rush hour you can kind of get to all the good food places wherever you want to go in la you can't necessarily do that so it's, it's kind of forced some new habits but uh it's it's by and large been an, an amazing experience experience living here and and uh and yeah what what is the food scene like out there the best it really is the best i mean literally anything that you you want or desire you can get it i think my uh, my fiance told me the other day that there's like 20,000 restaurants in LA or something crazy like that i don't know if i necessarily believe that there's 20,000 uh but the the mexican food is is the best uh, that i think the, the states have to offer by far that's that's been my my best and and my go-to spots here yeah my uh wife's Mom lived in LA for a long time, and uh, I, I check that she lived in Pasadena. And some of the street food in Pasadena, like the Mexican stuff, was just unbelievable. Um, but when you say everything, Graham, last fall I had Liz Lowe's of Yahoo on this show, and Liz grew up in a Chicago suburb, very close to where I live now. And this is a pretty good area for pizza. Liz said that it is hard <laughs> as hell to find decent pizza in LA. Is that what you've concluded to, or have you uh, like found a decent go-to pizza spot? <laughs> in LA, I will say, I, 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 heard, I heard when I first moved out here that the pizza was poor, and I'm a huge fan of pizza. So I, that was like always my concern moving out. When I first moved here, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do for pizza? But I, I will say there have been some pretty good, like nowhere near like what I'm accustomed to um, in terms of like pizza quality, but... I think LA is trying. Um, I'll give them that. There, there have definitely been, a, there's a few spots here where I live in Culver uh, where you can get a decent slice or two. But, but by and large, like if, if you're comparing like pizza cities in America, I mean, LA, it's not even in the top 100 still, but they're trying, they're trying <laughs> at least. So Graham, you had this incredible run a few years ago where you were putting out a bunch of great work and were very active on Twitter. And though I don't think you ever came out and said it on Twitter. It sort of seemed like you were making this gigantic career push where you were just going to kick down the door and find full-time work in the fantasy industry. And that did happen. And uh, you got a full-time gig and then eventually NFL.com came calling. Now, had that big push from a few years ago somehow not resulted in a job that you love and that pays the bills, 
what do you think you would have done? Like, where else could you have been happy if not in a fantasy football career? Well, for what it's worth, it almost didn't happen for me. Um, I was graduating with a finance degree from UNF in Jacksonville, University of North Florida in summer of 2016. Um, was working at Roto World, like technically part-time, but was, was doing a ton of hours. Um, and, and unfortunately, Roto World was not hiring a full-time position at that summer. And I saw fantasyguru.com, uh, ran by John Hansen at the time, was, was looking for a fantasy analyst, and I immediately jumped at it. And um, I originally got, got, the, got the offer pretty much the week I was graduating. So had I not, um, had John Hansen not offered me the, the analyst position at, at Guru, I, I would probably be, be doing something in fantasy football, maybe. Uh, maybe hopefully by then, but by now I would have a full-time job. But I was fully prepared to go into finance, man. I don't know what I would have done. Uh, like something in accounting or banking are super boring. And that's why, that's why I'm so fortunate and so happy to have this job in fantasy is because I, I would have, uh, you know, I would have had to, to take a pretty normal life approach, I guess. And now I get to live this, uh, this weird kind of contrarian fantasy life. Um, and- now we talked about yards created earlier, but I have to ask you about another metric that, uh, you recently introduced, um, the completion probability metric, which, and correct me if I'm wrong here. This comes from some sort of uh, some of the next gen stuff you guys have access to. What's that metric all about? Yes, uh, completion probability is a new metric that actually Matt Harmon um, and the next gen team from his time um, at the NFL kind of came up with. Like Harmon and the next gen team kind of wanted to define, um, like basically, you know, what's the likelihood that a pass is going to be caught at the NFL. And the next gen team has kind of blown it out uh, with all of this great tracking data that we have access to. And basically what completion probability factors is the distance, how far the ball traveled, um, how much separation the receiver had at the catch point, pressure on the passer. So that's just simply was the you know passer under pressure at the time the ball was thrown and the quarterback's speed when he was throwing. So was the quarterback on the move and how much time he had to throw in the pocket? So if you mix all of these factors kind of together and come up with one uh, one number, it's they came up with this you know completion probability number, and now we can come in and look at the best uh, quarterback receiver tandems based on efficiency and how many ca- you know catches or completions that these tandems have above expectation. So some of the guys who scored highly with completion probability, uh, Tyler Lockett. Mike Williams, Adam Thielen, along with their respective quarterbacks. Uh, these were some of the leaders. What do you see as the fantasy takeaways with guys like Lockett, Mike Williams, Thielen? Like what's uh, the fact that they fared so well in this last year? What do you think that says about them and their prospects going forward? Let's take Lockett, for example, um, just off the top. Like um, Tyler Lockett's average depth of target downfield. So the average distance the ball traveled downfield on his targets was thir- 13.5 yards. Um, while that's not the deepest in the NFL by any means, it's still literally almost double Michael Thomas's average depth of tar- average depth of target. Um, so Tyler Lockett last year, I, I kind of call- I called it the most efficient receiver season ever, and it may very well be. I mean, Lockett set the NFL record for yards per target yeah, for a receiver. Something, uh, his tw- yeah, just, yeah, it was, I think it was 13.5 or something like that, or, or something, just something ridiculous. I mean, it was over, I actually might've been over 14 yards. It beat Jordy Nelson's season, uh, that his absurd season he had with the Packers. Lockett's, uh, he had a 20.1% catch rate above expectation. So what this means is that he caught 20% more passes than we would normally expect, given the difficulty of Russell Wilson's passes to Lockett. Uh, compare this to Drew Brees and Michael Thomas. Like I just mentioned, Michael Thomas's average depth of target was significantly shorter downfield, but he still had and actually reset the NFL record in catch rate at 85%. Um, that's not to besmirch Michael Thomas's fantastic season. What the next gen stats probability metric does is it gives context to how difficult these, uh, the, the, these receptions were. And, and given how far Tyler Lockett was, downfield on the majority of his targets uh it really was like seriously one of the best receiver seasons we've ever seen even though he didn't put up like huge bulk numbers uh, and only saw 70 targets i mean lockett was pretty easily the most efficient receiver in the NFL. and you're a mike williams fan too right you've got him 
as a top 25 receiver, if I recall correctly? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, Tyler, uh, Tyrell Williams is gone now. Uh, we saw Mike Williams put up 10 touchdowns in his sophomore season. I mean, people thought Mike Williams was dead after he caught just 11 balls in his rookie year. Uh, he goes out and puts up a 10-touchdown season, and now Tyrell Williams is gone. Yeah, he, he, uh, he was also uh, extremely efficient in terms of next-gen stats, uh, completion probability metrics. He was third uh, in catch rate above expectation behind Michael Thomas and Tyler Lockett for the third best and third, excuse me, third most efficient quarterback and receiver tandem in terms of next gen's completion rate above expectation. Are you at all worried about Williams being somewhat volume challenged? I guess my concern with him just a little bit, and I, I like him too. You know, I've, I've got him top 30, maybe not top 25, but I worry just a little bit with Keenan Allen there, Hunter Henry there, and with just this Charger team looking so good overall, the defense being a potentially really top units that, you know, they could be in a lot of run-friendly game scripts. And I kind of worry with the combination of that and the target competition that maybe, you know, Mike Mike Williams doesn't max out just because maybe the targets aren't quite where we want them to be. True. And Hunter Henry's coming back. Um, I, for me, I love when my receiver two or receiver three on my fantasy teams is just a total splash play type player who uh, can deliver huge week winning weeks and I think Mike Williams is a week winning player um, I don't particularly like uh, having Williams as my first receiver so if I'm going running back heavy or I take a tight end early uh, Williams is not definitely not someone that I want as my number one or number two receiver but if I can get him as my three or as my flex I, I absolutely love that because I, I want the variance and I want the variability in my lineup I mean the Chargers too it's it's not like they don't have a ton of targets available either they have 22% of their target share from last season available. Uh, I don't think Mike Williams will see all of that, but if he can flirt with you know, 15 to 22% target share, uh, he's going to be just fine in that offense. And um, the Chargers are going to be a very good team this year. Their defense is fantastic for sure, and they're even better this, this coming year. But I want pieces of efficient offenses. I fully expect the Chargers to be one of the most efficient offenses. Yeah, and as you mentioned, no more Tyrell Williams, really not much uh, you know, beyond Keenan Allen and and. Mike Williams, what, Travis Benjamin, Dylan Cantrell, there's not much there. So uh, what about some of the guys who... Yeah, Cantrell, Cantrell and Benjamin will get, you know, they'll get their looks, but Williams is by far their, their number yeah, two. Yeah, agreed. What about some of the guys who scored poorly in uh, completion probability, like Jarvis Landry, Mar Marcus Valdez-Scantling, Quincy Inunua? How damning are their results? Jarvis is, I think, probably... The he was the most surprising and, and maybe um, the most interesting one to talk about this. Um, now, his catch rate below expectation wasn't extremely poor, but it it also kind of, I think, illuminated just how inefficient a his role can be. Now, if we go back and look uh, at the time when Todd Haley and Hugh Jackson was running the team in weeks one through eight, Jarvis Landry saw nearly 12 targets per and saw double-digit looks in, I think, all but one game. Uh, but once Freddie Kitchens took over, their tendencies completely flipped. Jarvis Landry only saw around seven targets per game, and he did not see 10 or more targets in a single game for the rest of this season. Um, I just don't think Jarvis Landry is the type of player you want to funnel targets to, and I think some of his uh, poor catch rate metrics in terms of, in terms of, in terms of his, uh, with, the, with the next-gen stats completion metrics, is simply because he saw too much volume early in the season, and it's kind of a little bit noisy. Um, regardless, though, the Browns, I think, have got to find a way to get to make Mayfield to Landry more efficient, and they just did that by getting Odell Beckham, who can he's got he can move all over the field, stretch the field horizontally, and everything you might expect. Uh, I just think they they funneled too many targets to Landry early in the season, and you know his efficiency numbers look very poor based on that. Let's circle back to the quarterbacks real quickly. I just want to follow up with you on Jameis and Kyler, because I think those are two of the more interesting guys this year. Um, I know it just seems like most analysts are giddy about the potential of the Tampa passing game, but uh, like me, you seem to be a bit conflicted on Jameis with your rankings. And um, I, know I think you had him at QB 12, and I'm pretty much in that ballpark too. Just so many things to like here with the weapons and Bruce Arians as his head coach, a lousy defense that could lead to a lot of shootouts. And yet, 
I don't know, hasn't exactly been seashells and balloons with Jameis to this point in his pro career. So what are your thoughts on his outlook for the season ahead? Interesting. I actually really like Jameis this season, and I think it speaks to just the quarterback position as a whole that I have in that 12. I just couldn't find anybody that I wanted to rank you know, Jameis ahead of. I've got Wentz at 11, Goff at 10, Matt Ryan at 9, and Cam at 8, and then you know, just the kind of usual specs, uh, suspects from 1 through 7. Um, I think Jameis could have an absolutely monster, monster season with the Bucks, I fully expect Arians to be extremely, extremely ag- aggressive downfield. And we know Jameis loves to be aggressive downfield. That being said, Jameis in his career has not been a good deep ball passer. And I wonder how Bruce Arians is going to combat that. Um, my Obviously, my biggest concern is the same concern that everyone has about Jameis is just his decision making. And if Bruce Arians can cut out some of the interceptions like he did with Carson Palmer late in his career, I think Jameis could blow up this season because like you mentioned, that Bucks defense, it'll be bad. And that's the thing, man, based on situation alone, like I could easily put Jameis ahead of like Drew Brees and I almost want to, like it, it almost makes sense, but a benching on the merits is not in Drew Brees' range of outcomes. And it is with Winston, you know, and, uh, you know, I know you get replaceability at quarterback, so it's not a total disaster if your quarterback is benched unless you're in a two QB league, but you know, still there's just that ugly downside with the uh yeah know. but this year they don't they don't have ryan fitzpatrick and i know i know people like to sh- you know kind of poo poo fitz magic but True. like their their True. second quarterbacks this year are blaine gabber and ryan griffin like they are fully committed to Jameis this season and, and if if he sucks i mean they're I, unless they make a trade that we're not expecting i i think he's going to be their starter for all 16 games barring injury now, what about Kyler? It seems like so many people want to give this offense its wings already, but your initial rankings had Murray, uh, what did we say? He was just behind Big Ben for you in number 18. And I know what you're saying about the quarterback class being so deep. Yes, but like, um, is part of that the thinking that maybe this offense takes a little while to get off the ground? It's it's that. It's also, I, I as much as I want to be um, – as much as I want to believe and invest in Cliff Kingsbury's ideas and his air raid principles, I also am very real to the point that he's never called a game in, at the NFL level ever in his career. And Kyler Murray, Kyler Murray is a rookie quarterback playing behind kind of a makeshift slash just really poor offensive line. Um, Murray's going to run around and scramble, and I, I think we all know the fantasy value attached to running quarterbacks. Again, though, having him at 19 and having him below Kirk Cousins and Big Ben just kind of speaks to more or less. I think there's a little bit more downside than, than people are expecting with Murray, but also it's just it's just so, so deep. This this quarterback class with for fantasy this year is just it's just insanely, insanely deep. Yeah, that's fair. And I don't think that counts as uh, hating on Kyler at all. Graham, I need to let you run so you can head up to the Viper room or whichever bars on the sunset trip you like to haunt. Uh, dude, thank you so much for being my guest this week. I was geeked up all weekend about finally getting to talk to you and it was everything I was hoping it would be. Uh, but before I let you run, could you not only remind people where to find you, but uh, let them know about anything you might have in the works and maybe tell them about the big change in the uh, default scoring at NFL.com. Yeah. First and foremost, thanks so much for having me on. It's a good time uh, talking to you, uh, my friend. I, I know uh, it's it's an exciting time. You know, May June, we're all kind of getting close to to, to to actual fantasy time, and it's it's always good to come on here and chop it up. But yeah, uh, the NFL has joined the 21st century. We have changed our standard uh, our standard league um, setting from from standard scoring to PPR. Um, this has been something that that we've been. Trying to do behind the scenes, Michael Fabiano has been pushing for this behind the scenes for a couple of years. We finally got it done. Uh, if you sign up for a league on NFL.com at any time, your standard scoring will now be PPR. Um, we also have a new fantasy app, which is pretty cool, um, that we're going to be adding to this offseason with a bunch of new features. But for now, uh, it's got a, re- a total redesign. All of our player pages have been redesigned. League pages have been redesigned. The way you view articles and and uh, video content and podcasts is all being redesigned on the on the uh, on the the new app. Uh, you can go check it out wherever you download your apps, iOS, Android, wherever you get them. Um, and, and yeah, sign up for an NFL.com league and, and switch over to the P- <laughs> switch over to the PPR. It's actually funny. Scott Barrett texted me after I after I wrote that article, and he's like, "What is this? 2013?" <laughs> 
it's so, funny. Yeah, we anyway. here in Chicago, I mean, you know, of course, Chicago, like home of the the Grabowskis and the uh, run first mentality. Like we've got our enclave here of, of standard league advocates, uh, Andy Barons, the head of the uh, FSWA, Michael Beller, even myself, I definitely lean towards standard or, you know, maybe uh, the, the moderate half PPR positions. There, there are legitimate great arguments for it. Marcus, Marcus Grant, my co-host over at uh, NFL, he's the same way as you. He, he still advocates for standard. And I actually have kind of, come around to just making half PPR the standard. But anyway, we're going with PPR at NFL.com. Yeah, I will say it does like level out the touchdown variance at all. Like if you don't have that PPR element, touchdown variance just like it kind of increases the level that touchdowns can affect things. And like PPR sort of helps neutralize that a little bit. So I would say that's the biggest thing PPR has going for it. But uh, yeah, you guys are finally coming into the modern era with that and uh congratulations on that i'm glad there were no fist fights in the background uh over that change so even if marcus 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 wanted to th- marcus wanted to throw hands <laughs> but i didn't let him <laughs> well grant thanks i don't i held him back <laughs> thanks again uh enjoy the downtime or uh you know what amounts to downtime in this business as much as you can until things really heat up and uh hope to talk to you again soon thanks pat Well, that's going to do it for this episode. So please allow me to tie a ribbon around things by once again thanking this week's guest, Graham Barfield of NFL.com. Find him on Twitter at Graham Barfield. Thank you to my wonderful producer, Colm Kelly, a fellow Green Bay Packer fan who likes to roam the streets of his little coastal Irish town wearing a foam cheese head. Uh, Actually, that's probably not true, but it doesn't make Colm any less of a Packer fan if he doesn't. Find him on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. Thank you to my friend and colleague, Melissa Jacobs of thefootballgirl.com. Melissa helps make the Fits on Fantasy podcast possible, so blame it all on her. And go find her on Twitter anyway, at thefootballgirl. And by the way, Melissa and I are going to be announcing some news in just a day or two, so keep an eye out for that. Thank you to International Jet Set for the music. They are one of the finest ska bands to ever come out of Milwaukee and pioneers of the Brewtown ska movement. And of course, my sincere thanks to all of you for listening. I really do appreciate your patronage and hopefully you'll keep coming back. All right, I've got a golf outing coming up this weekend, so I need to go hit some range balls. If you happen to be out walking around the northwest suburbs of Chicago, I highly recommend that you keep your head on a swivel because my driver and I have not been getting along lately and I've been putting Titleists in places they were never meant to go. All right, folks, so long and I will see you again soon. Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in, are you?